Well, my name is John. I'm one of the guys on staff here. Super glad to be uh, back with you guys. Hey, before we get rolling, can we give it up for Melanie and our uh, city group leaders? Uh, last week, uh, we were out of town. Most of our staff was out of town. And uh, Jacob took his weekly vacation to Cancun, and he wasn't here either. And uh, uh, they crushed it. Mel led uh, them. Uh, you guys as city group leaders, uh, you were able to just serve City Light you well. So thank you guys uh, so much uh, for doing that. Well, hey, if you got your Bibles, open them up to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, we're actually in a three-part uh, sermon series that uh, last week, Andrew McGill, our good friend over at Providence, uh, kicked off this series uh, last week, and so this will be the second installment, and then next week Jacob's going to uh, wrap it up. But it's a three-part series we call Doctrine of Scripture, which is essentially just a fancy way of asking this question. What do we believe about the Bible? What do we believe about the Bible? And that's actually where I want to start tonight. What, what do we believe about the Bible? What do you believe about the Bible? Well, I was a kid uh, that grew up in a Christian home. I was raised in the church. I think I was born in a church. I was probably born with the Bible in my hand. From a very early age, I learned the Bible. I learned all the stories. I learned a bunch of verses. But one thing I never did when I was a kid was memorize the order of the Bible uh, uh, books. I don't know if any of you guys ever did that. Like sometimes I'd be in like a Sunday school class and the teacher would be like, all right, we're going to sing a song that you're going to learn how to memorize the order of the Bible books. And I'm like, I don't know if you know this teacher, but like the Bible has a table of contents. Like, why would I memorize that? Like, I can find out what page it is. That never made any sense to me. But anyway, when I got to college, my freshman year, uh, I began to have a lot of doubts about the scriptures. I don't know if anybody uh, can resonate with that. I began to have a lot of questions about the Bible. I began to ask things like this. Is the Bible actually the words of God? We say that this is the Word of God. Is it actually the words of God? How did we get the Bible? Like, how did all these books end up all together like this? This is written over thousands of years by multiple authors. Who was the person who decided, or people that decided, or how did it be become the book that we have today? And, and, and who decided that? On what criteria? Can we add books to the Bible? Like, were there supposed to be books that made it but didn't make it? And, and does God, like, is he waiting to, to write more books? And could we add books to the Bible? Does the Bible actually contain errors? Are there contradictions in the scriptures? Does the Bible actually have final authority over our lives? What Bible teachers should I listen to. If the Bible is truth, why does it seem like all these Bible teachers can make it seem to say whatever they want? Somebody's wrong. Somebody has to be right. How do I know who to listen to? Anybody resonate with that? Anybody been there before asking questions like that when it comes to the scriptures? These were just some of the questions that plagued my mind. Now, here's what's interesting. In my freshman year, during this time, as I'm asking all these questions, I'm also living a double life. I'm going to church on Sunday, I'm raising my hand during the worship services, but I'm also partying on the weekends and I'm getting drunk. And I'm living this complete double life. It's almost like my head wanted all these intellectual answers about the Bible, but my heart wanted just to pursue all these sinful pleasures. 
And finally, my head and my heart collided one day my, in the spring of my freshman year where I went into my theological uh, professor. I don't know why I picked my theological professor, but everything just kind of blew up in his office. And I began to just ask all these questions, and I began to confess my double life. And he was very helpful in answering many of the questions that I had. I can share some of the things he, he told uh, me with you later if you have uh, similar, some of these other questions because I'm not going to be able to answer all this tonight. Uh, but one of the things that he said that stuck out to me so much was this. He said, hey, John, you're missing one question about the Bible. You need to ask this. What impact does the Bible have on those who actually believe it? What impact is the Bible having on you right now in your double life? And all of a sudden, it just hit me. It hit me because I was genuinely seeking answers about the scriptures. I genuinely wanted to know if there were answers to the questions that I had about the Bible. But here's the thing. All I wanted was answers. I just wanted a yes or a no. What I didn't want was for the Bible to actually change my life. But that's exactly what I desperately needed. And as I began to confess my sin and say, Oh God, I don't, I, I don't want to just answers. I want this to actually change my life. Suddenly when I, my head and my heart collided in that way, this peace came over my doubts and my faith in God's word began to increase. Now, let me be clear, that's not an apologetic to, to prove that this is truth, that what we read in the Bible is true. There's a lot of untruthful things in this world that can still change people. But here's what changed for me. I stopped looking at this book as some theological question to answer, some theological conundrum to crack. I stopped doing that. And I began to look at the Bible as something that could radically change my life. And over time, guess what happened? Not only did I begin to believe that this was true and that it was the Word of God, but I also saw that it was changing my life. So to let you, what we believe about the Bible changes everything. What we believe about the Bible matters significantly for so many reasons, but I don't want us to lose sight of the fact that the more you read this book, the more it should be changing your life. This is a safe place to bring your questions. This is a safe place to bring your doubts. Don't run away from the church with your questions. Run to the church with your questions. And I want you to know that we here at City Light, I'm not ashamed to let you know that we believe this is the Word of God. That's why we teach it. We believe that what is contained in these pages are the exact words that God wanted and that God designed and that it's true in all that it says. However, at the end of the day, what I want us to ask is this question. Is that truth changing your life? Even if you got all of the answers to all of your questions, even if you could defend this as the, the, the best truth you've ever heard, at the end of the day, would that just be information in your head? Or would it be heavenly knowledge that radically changes your life? What you believe about the Bible is answered by how much the scriptures are changing your life. Let me say that again. What you believe about the Bible is answered 
by how much the scriptures are changing your life. This is what our text is going to go after tonight. Uh, so hopefully you're there in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Since it's a short chapter, I'm actually going to just read the whole chapter. Some of these verses at the end are very familiar, and I want us to see them in context. But we're actually going to be hunkering down in verses 14 through 17 for the night. But I'm going to read the whole chapter so you guys get a handle on the context. So this is 2 Timothy chapter 3. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the, t the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from who you learned it, and, from, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is God's word. So in this text, Paul is essentially contrasting two different ways. There are two different ways. There are two people. One is changed by Scripture. One is not changed by Scripture. And what they believe about the Bible essentially determines what path they will go. So Paul, halfway through that chapter, he says, But you listen to me. Listen to my teaching. Listen to the Scriptures. Paul's pleading with Timothy to continue to believe in the Scriptures so that he can be changed by the Scriptures. In verses 14 through 17, he offers us five ways that I believe that the Bible changes us. And tonight I want to unpack those five things. So it's going to be really practical tonight. If you're not a note taker, become a note taker for tonight because you're going to want to write some of this stuff down, take some notes, and then go back and refresh yourself with some of this uh, and meditate on it in the weeks to come. So five things that 
Paul teaches us about how the Bible changes us. The first is this. The Bible changes us through learning and believing. The Bible changes us through learning and believing. Verse 14 says this, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. Notice that Paul is telling Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. Timothy was kind of like a church kid. Uh, He grew up in the church. He would have grown up hearing the scriptures. He learned it from his mom, Eunice, and he actually learned it from his grandmother, Lois, and he was taught directly by Paul. So he had three awesome people pouring into his life. And so Paul is, what he's doing here in this chapter is he's saying, Timothy, consider the people who have taught you the scriptures. Consider their way of life. Look at your mom's life. Look at your grandmother's life. Look at my life and consider how the scriptures have impacted us. And Paul's saying, hey, look at how I've endured suffering. Look at how I've endured trialing and how I've been able to maintain patience and I've been able to maintain love and I've been able to maintain steadfastness and faithfulness to the Lord in the midst of all of these trials. The reason I was able to do that is because of my faith and what I had learned from the scriptures. Look at those people who don't believe the scriptures. You think those imposters, those people who go from bad to worse, you think they would have been able to endure what I did? They don't trust in this. They're not anchored in this. Therefore, they're going to go from bad to worse. Paul's saying my way of life, your mom's way of life, your grandmother's way of life should give you confidence to continue to learn and believe in the scriptures because when trials and sufferings come, the scriptures ground us. They're they're able to make us still stand. I had the privilege of uh, placing my faith in Jesus because of my mom's uh, faithfulness to share Jesus with me. I was 12 years old, uh, uh, and she shared the gospel with me, and I was uh, fortunate enough to have my mom be the one that led me to the Lord. Uh, But one of the things that I've always admired about my mom's faith is her love of the scriptures. My mom just has this appetite to want to learn the scriptures. She's like a sponge. If there's a Bible study going on in her church, she wants to sign up. She wants to, like, learn as much as she can, and then she wants to lead it for other people. Uh, My mom loves the scriptures. But probably even more amazing than her quest to learn the Bible is how much the scriptures grounded my mom when my dad passed away. Uh, About a couple of weeks after my... uh, dad had passed, I had wanted to send my mom text messages uh, with just scripture verses. But if I'm honest, and I'm like in the ministry, I was super timid and shy to do that because what I didn't want to do is I didn't want to use the Bible in an unsympathetic way. I didn't want to just send a Bible verse as though it's like this pill that you just take and you get over grief, right? But I remember my mom in that moment, she's like, no, 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 no. You need to send me the scriptures. I need the scriptures, is what she said to me. If God is you, like, you need to send me the scriptures. I need it, is what she said. And I just remember being so convicted in that moment because I kept thinking, why would I not believe that God's word could speak into this moment? Why, why would I believe that I could say something better than the scriptures to my mom in this moment? Because here's the reality. If God himself through his word, cannot speak into our grief, then there are no words that can speak into grief. And I just remember admiring my mom in that moment. 
thinking the Bible has radically changed her life. I saw a woman that had unbelievable resolve and patience and love, even in the midst of suffering. City Light U is the Bible changed your life the way that it's changed my mom's life. If you're a fellow church kid, let me warn you with something. Your knowledge of scripture is not going to get you into heaven. Learning this book does not equal being a Christian. Let me say that again. Learning this book does not equal being a Christian. It's not enough just to learn the song Father Abraham and God told Noah to build an arky arky. Like, that's not going to cut it, right? There comes a point where you not only learn, but you have to believe. You have to place your trust in the scriptures. You have to believe it, that this book can actually change your life. Because believe it or not, suffering and trials, they're coming for you. They're headed your way. You're either in it right now or it's off in the future. And those trials and those sufferings, they're either going to expose your lack of faith in the scriptures and toss you around, or they're going to expose your faith in the scriptures and you will stand and you will be strengthened. The Bible changes us through learning and believing. The second way the Bible changes us is by making us wise for salvation. Verse 15 says this, From childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. Let me say this as clear as I can. The Bible has one message, and it's a message of salvation. The Bible has one message, and it's a message of salvation. This whole thing has one point, and that's to direct us to the amazing salvation plan of God. The Bible is not basic instructions before leaving earth. Have you ever heard that acronym? B-I-B-L-E, basic instructions before leaving earth. It's not that. It's not an owner's manual on the Christian life. It's not Aesop's fables. It's not even a textbook that contains historical history, although it does actually have real true history in it. That's just not what the Bible primarily is about. The Bible is primarily about a story of how the God of the universe made a salvation plan for sinners like you and me through the work of Jesus Christ. Christianity is based on the scriptures because in these pages we see a God who doesn't demand that we live up to a certain standard, but that he has said, I am going to become like you and come down to earth. I'm going to literally move heaven and earth so that I can get to you guys through the person and work of Jesus and live out the standard for you so that you could be with me for eternity. The entire scriptures are set up around the work of Jesus. He lived the life that we should have lived. He died a death that we deserved, and he's risen to a new life that he wants to impart to us today through faith. But I want us to notice how this verse is phrased. It says that the Bible makes us wise for salvation. Wise for salvation. The opposite of wisdom is what? We just went through Proverbs. What is it? Anybody know? You shout it out. You talk. Foolishness, folly, right? The op- Good, somebody was paying attention during the Proverbs series. The opposite of wisdom is foolishness. It is folly. Interestingly enough, you actually see that word in verse 9 of chapter 
3, when Paul talks about two people who oppose the truth and are corrupted and disqualified in the faith. In other words, Paul is saying that before we can actually receive salvation, there has to be a supernatural working in our hearts and our minds that allows us to become wise so that we place our faith in Jesus. How do we get that wisdom so that we can place our faith in Jesus? It's by reading the scriptures. This works like painting a wall, right? If I go to paint a wall and I were to just throw up paint, let's say I wanted it to be a red wall and I just started painting with red paint, eventually what's going to happen is bubbles are going to form, you're going to see brush marks, and eventually that paint is going to peel and it's going to fall off. Why? Because I didn't put an important thing down and that's called primer. I need to put primer first before I put my color down because what primer does is it allows the paint to stick to the wall. It allows it to ha- not have brush marks. It allows it to not be bubbly and it allows it to be smooth and it allows it to stick so it doesn't fall off later. Likewise, the word of God is primer to our salvation. As this word is literally spoken out by people, the Holy Spirit is the paint that comes and makes the salvation stick using the word of God, right? As we study the Bible, it begins to open up our hearts and our minds in supernatural wisdom that the Holy Spirit gives us so that salvation can become more easily applied to our lives and actually stick. If you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus, would you allow God's word to prime your heart to receive salvation. Maybe you're here tonight and, you're, and I don't know why you came. Maybe you came with a friend. Maybe you came because you hadn't been in a while. Maybe you've been coming all semester. But if you were to ask yourself honestly, you would say, I don't follow Jesus. I'm not a Christian. I can't live this life on my own. What I'm trusting in tonight will not sustain me if I were to go through suffering and trial. I need Jesus and I need his work for me. I pray that you would place your faith in Jesus tonight. And then you can talk to one of us on staff. We would love to to help you do that tonight. If you're here tonight, no pressure. We don't want to guilt you into that. And you're not ready to receive Jesus. I ask that you would continue to read the scriptures, that you would continue to apply this like primer on your heart, that God may open up your heart and your mind to receive salvation and be wise to receive it. Tonight, if you are a Christian, here's my application for you. Don't think that you can out-evangelize the Bible, right? I think sometimes so often we're looking for that best gospel presentation to share, and I think sometimes we just need to ask people, hey, do you want to get together and read the Bible? I like ramen noodle. You like ramen noodle? We're free on Thursday at one. I know your schedule. Like, let's get together. We'll eat ramen, and we'll read the gospel of John right? Like, I think evangelism is honestly that simple. You know why? Because when you start opening up these pages, the Word of God speaks and lays down a primer in someone's heart to make them wise for salvation. The Holy Spirit loves to do that. Don't go on a quest thinking that you could say the right thing or or have the right wisdom. God is the one that will supply the wisdom. You just need to open the pages. Let's Use the Word of God to lay the primer down for someone to receive salvation. Let's use the Word of God to make people wise for salvation. Third thing, the Bible changes us because it is breathed out by God. 
Verse 16 says, all scripture is breathed out by God. The phrase breathed out by God is actually one word in the Greek, in the original language. So literally, the, or the literal translation should read this. All scripture is God breathed. God breathed is one word. Now, there are some who wish to say that Paul is only talking about the Old Testament in this section. That when he refers to scripture, he's talking about the Old Testament. I don't think that's the case. If you go to his earlier book in uh, 1 Timothy, the one that he wrote to Timothy first, that's why it's called first, 1 Timothy 5.18, it says this, For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Now, why would I read that verse? I'm going to read that verse because he uses that word scripture there. And notice that first statement, You shall not muzzle an ox that treads out grain, that's from the Old Testament. But the laborer deserves his wages. Where's that statement found? Those are actually the very words of Jesus. So what Paul is doing here is he's saying, hey, it's not just the Old Testament that I can consider Scripture. It's also the words of Christ. And not only are the words of Jesus considered Scripture, but even Paul's own words were considered Scripture. 2 Peter 3, 15-16 says this, "...and count the patience of our Lord as salvation." Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. Amen. I love that because Romans is super hard to understand. Uh, Which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. Catch this phrase. This is what I want you to see. As they do the other scriptures. Do you see what Peter just did there? He just said Paul's writings, his letters, are on the same wavelength as Scripture. So you see, even Peter considered Paul's words to be Scripture. So when Paul says all Scripture is God-breathed, he means the Old and the New Testament. Now, this statement doesn't conclusively prove that the Scriptures are, in fact, the words of God. But this is what it does do, is it proves that the authors of these books considered that what they were writing was, in fact, the words of God. So what that means then is that these authors, if they're saying, hey, these are the words of God that I'm writing down to you, either they're wrong or they're right. Either they're right, and this is the word of God, or they're wrong and they're lying to you. We have to decide. But what does it mean that the scriptures are breathed out by God? Well, it implies at least three things. Number one, scripture is authoritative because it is God-breathed. All the commentators make this point that The Bible is authoritative. If this book is essentially equivalent to the voice box of God, then whatever it says should actually have absolute rule over our lives because it is God who is speaking. If I say to my kids, kids, it's dinner time. Come to the dinner table. And my kids are like, we love you, dad. We're just not going to listen to your voice, right? What's going to be my reaction? I'm going into the family room and being like, I'm going to show you that my voice has the power to literally make you come to the table, right? Like, don't test me, child. Uh, My voice has way more power than you think. And with that power, because of the relationship I have with my my, uh, kids, it carries authority. The Bible is God's voice calling to us. We need to treat it as authoritative. The second thing it implies is Scripture is powerful because it is God-breathed. The very breath that spoke the world into existence— the very breath that's, that breathed into Adam and gave life to humanity resides in these pages. 
That means these words carry power. Now, the Bible's not a spell book. It's not like if I open this up and start reading the words that are in there that I'm going to cast a spell like a witch and magic will start happening in my life. Like, that's not, that's not what I mean by power. What I mean by power is that these words have power to shape our whole lives and give us meaning and purpose. There's not a lot of things out in this world that can give you meaning and purpose in your life. The Word of God can. Third thing, Scripture is personal because it's God-breathed. I've been convicted lately that my view of God is too small. God is the most supreme being in all the universe. That means he is infinite in his essence and his attributes are infinite. That, what that means then is you can't possibly comprehend the love or justice or beauty or glory of God because in those things, God is infinite. They go on forever. They're, they can't be bound by time or space. And yet it's that God who decided to disclose himself to you and me. He didn't just wait up in heaven for us to figure out life on our own. He didn't say, I'm, I'm too busy, I'm too glorious, and they, they don't need me. No, he, he said, the best thing for humanity is for me to reveal myself to them. And I'm going to reveal myself to them in a way that they understand. Like a good dad who, when he comes home from work, gets on the ground and plays with his kids and lets, him, lets them know he loves them and he cherishes them and he puts things in their language so that they understand, that's what God did with the Bible. It's highly personal. The Bible changes us through learning and believing by making us wise for salvation, all because it is God-breathed. Fourth, the Bible changes us by being profitable. The Bible changes us by being profitable. Verse 16 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Scripture is profitable for teaching us about God, teaching us about his plan for salvation, ourselves, and why the world is the way that it is. Scripture is profitable because it's reproof. That word means, what that word means is that the Bible is going to tell you that you're wrong. Like, I don't know if you've ever read this book before, but when you read it, you're like, oh my gosh, like, God is holy and I am not, right? Why does God put up with us? Uh, He must have incredible love. Like, that's how you should read this book and, and come to that conclusion. Scripture is like a magnifying glass that's going to expose our sinfulness. It's reproof. Scripture is also profitable because it corrects, too. It doesn't just say, hey, you're a sinner. It also says, hey, God's also provided correction in Jesus. Let's place our faith in him. Lastly, Scripture is profitable because it trains us in righteousness. It makes us look like Jesus. Now, the thing I love about this is it says all Scripture is profitable. I think in our heart of hearts, we know we should believe that, but we don't want to really believe that. Let's be honest. Like when you go through those Bible reading plans and you're stuck in the laws of Leviticus and the genealogies of numbers, and you're like, yeah, God, I don't think all scripture is profitable, uh, right? I, I mean, I've, I've definitely been there. It feels like a fight just to read through that. But here's the thing we need to understand. Do we really think that the creator of the universe is up in heaven saying, I want to reveal myself to mankind, and I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to put myself in a book that's in their language. But just to mess with them a little bit, I'm going to put these books in there that have these really strange laws and these really boring names that they can't pronounce, and I'm just going to laugh in heaven when they try to pronounce them. Like, that, like, that's not God's posture towards us when he wrote this. He's like a good parent. He's speaking what is profitable over his 
kids. Sure, it might take some time and some maturity and some study and some community and some outside help to understand Leviticus, to understand numbers and other books in the Bible. Remember, Peter said Paul's writings were hard to understand. Like, there are some things that are hard to understand, but the Bible is profitable. And once we understand that, it will change us. I think the other hang-up we have is we approach the scriptures like I did in college, where all we want is just answers out of this. Just give me info. Instead, we need to approach the Bible the way Second Peter or Second Timothy t- t- tells us in here. What is it teaching me? What is it reproofing in me? What is it correcting in me? What is it training me in righteousness? When you read the Bible on a daily or weekly basis or whatever your Bible time is when you read it, ask this question. Am I just checking off a box so that I can feel better about myself? Or are you crying out to God asking that he would use this book to radically change your life? The fifth thing. The Bible changes us by making us complete. The Bible changes us by making us complete. Verse 17 says that all scripture is profitable so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Because the end goal of this book is to make you look like Jesus, to make you equipped to do every good work. Why? So that when you do the good works, you're revealing to the world that the God behind this Bible loves them. That there is a God who wrote this to change people, to go out, to share his word with more people through good works, that more and more people get changed. That's why he wrote this. We are actually the best proof that the Bible is real when we let it change our lives. You want, to be, you want the best apologetic for our world, that this is the word of God and true? Let it change your life. That's what our world needs to see. When I was a kid, uh, our church did this kids program uh, called Awana. Do you guys ever hear about this? You guys ever do this if you're a church kid? So Awana, if you're not a fellow church kid, Awana was this acronym that stood for approved workmen are not ashamed. They even have a song for it. I might sing it later for you if you want. Um, It came from 2 Timothy 2.15. It was basically the Christian version of Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts, but like for for Christians, um, right? You would memorize these Bible verses. You wore these like vest things and you would get like badges and For every Bible verse you memorize, you got like another jewel pin or whatever. Uh, That's kind of what it was. I'm not going to lie, it was weird. Like, can I say it was weird? Uh, It was kind of for homeschoolers. And because it was all of those things, uh, I dominated at it. Uh, Like, I was probably the LeBron James of uh, Awana. Like, it was the epitome of nerddom. Like, I, I, I was so good at it that they stopped giving me badges and they started giving me trophies. You know you're a nerd if you have a trophy in your bedroom that says, like, first place Bible memorization, right? Uh, like, that, that was my childhood. And I loved Awana because it, it did help me actually, like, once I later— so I learned the scriptures through Awana, and then later when I actually did come to faith, I, it helped because all those scriptures actually came to mind. Um, 
But one of the things uh, that I noticed uh, in my childhood, and I don't think I was alone in this, is that really what I was doing as a kid is I wasn't really comprehending what I was memorizing it. I was doing it for the prize. I was doing it so I could beat the other kid and get more jewels and get the trophies and get the little badges, right? I was doing it because the teacher was bribing me with candy if I memorized the verse. Like, I was doing it because I got to pick out of a treasure box thing at the end and I got some toy that would break on the way home. Uh, Like, that's why I was doing it. I wanted the prize. Now, that might not have been the best motivation as a child, but I think there's still an underlining principle that we can learn here. In a similar fashion... We should pour ourselves into Scripture, memorize it, saturate ourselves in it, also for a prize. But not a prize of candy or trophies or things that fade away. We memorize Scripture for the prize of looking completely like Jesus. Our future is one where we will look like Jesus completely. And the Word of God, by the grace of God, is the steps that the Holy Spirit uses to get us there. Guys, this book will change your life. The question is, do we believe that? The Bible changes us through learning and believing by making us wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ because it is God-breathed and profitable. And it alone has the power to make us look like Jesus. May we put our faith in the scriptures that they might radically change our lives. Let's pray. God, I pray that any words that I have spoken up here that are human words from me would fall by the wayside. And I pray that the words that are contained in the scriptures, the words of God, would penetrate hearts, would lay down a primer that people might receive salvation even here tonight. God, of all the ways in which you could have created everything that exists, God, you chose to speak it into existence. And God, you've been speaking a story ever since. God, that even though humanity fell away from you and in relationship with you, you've been calling out and speaking out ever since. God, as you called a family to yourself and Abraham and created a people for yourself. And over and over and over again, they abandoned you and ran away from you and turned to things that were not God. And every time, God, you kept speaking, calling, calling them to come back to you. And eventually, God, when it seemed like your voice had run silent, when your people were scattered, you called, but you called not from heaven. You called by sending forth your son, the very word of God. 
And just when it looked like heaven had come to earth, that people were finally going to receive your word and return back to you, God, we took your very words and we hung them up on a tree and we slaughtered them. that was not the final word because you rose victoriously the same voice that spoke creation into existence called Jesus out of his own grave and spoke silence over death once and for all and God that same voice came down in your spirit and resides in us by the word of your promise, God, that in the new covenant, the Holy Spirit would come into us and make your law and your truth and the very words of God binded to our heart. And God, now you've called us to go forth and to declare your word to a dying world that desperately needs to hear that there is a God who has spoken. God who has spoken grace and mercy and triumph over the grave. God, would we be that people? May your word change us. It's in your mighty son's name that I pray.